Um, so for those who do not know me, um, I am the RUF campus minister, that's Reformed University Fellowship, um, the campus minister at the Air Force Academy, um, and I also serve as an Army Reserve chaplain at Fort Carson. So I kind of cool, I have a foot in both communities. Um, little background, I'm an Army brat, was in the Air Force active duty as an officer for eight years, separated, went to seminary, did the crazy thing of going blue to green, been in the Army now for about four years. And I love both of my jobs. They're amazing. Also, a quick shout out. Today's my 12-year anniversary. And um, we've been at General Assembly this whole past week, and we're tired, which is the theme of our text this morning. So her giving me this time to preach for y'all is just such a grace that she's given to me, and I pray to you as well. Um, all right, so our question this morning is this. Do you feel secure? Do you feel secure? Um, in the military, security is like the name of the game. Um, everything revolves around security. Um, it's why we wear camouflage uniforms, um, to keep us secure, right? It's why we have armored tanks. It's why we have stealth fighters. It's all for security purposes, to protect and defend. You can't do that without security. Uh, we dig fighting positions to provide security. We come up with uh, military plans and strategies and tactics to increase security. The military is all about security. And I think this morning um, that that's the case for all of us as well. Um, everyone is all about security. Whether they are a Christian or not, everyone is desperately looking and longing to experience security, um, to feel safe, um, to be protected from danger in a tumultuous world. Um, God made us for this. He made us to experience security. Um, but due to the fall, due to our sinful nature, due to the brokenness of our world and our culture, we don't know where to find security. Um, but we were made for it. So we will do anything to find it. We're desperate for it, and we won't rest until we experience it in some form or fashion. So let me ask you again, do you feel secure this morning? I think if we're all being honest, we would answer with a somber no. Not really. There's a lot of things to be weary about in our world. Um, our world loves to grab hold of us and, and, and invite this unwelcome passenger called anxiety and fear to, to travel along with us wherever we go. Um, it is hard to live in this world and not be weary. Um, in fact, I would argue that if you are in this world and you do not feel any semblance of weariness, you are either living under a rock or you just haven't really experienced life. But here's the question. Is it possible to feel insecure and still be secure? Is it possible to feel anxious while at the same time resting under the safe shelter that is God's love and grace? Spoiler alert for the sermon, yes, we can. 
We can. Uh, we are complex creatures. We can be both restful and restless. Um, so I invite you all to please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Please open your Bibles. We'll be looking at Judges chapter 8, verses 4 to 17. It's kind of a long passage. It's not too bad. Judges 8, 4 through 17. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, weary yet pursuing, were exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. O oh, Gideon. Oh. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with our army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jagbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are, are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And that's where we're going to end on that somber note. Let me pray that God would be with us as we dive into his word. Uh, gracious and good Heavenly Father, um, we need you this morning to open our hearts and our minds to the meaning of this text. We pray, Lord, that you will teach us what we don't know, that you will uh, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, encouraged, where you will convict us where we need to be convicted, and that we will grow deeper in love with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. All right, so our passage this morning is the second half of Gideon's story. I know in Sunday school, contrary to popular opinion, there is a second half to Gideon's story. It doesn't just end with the trumpets, the torches, and the jars of clay. Gideon's story goes on. And to be honest, I kind of wish it had ended at chapter 7, because uh, Gideon's story just takes a downward spiral. Um, so before this passage that we just read, um, God performs, he displays. It's one of the greatest uh, displays of God's redeeming power and his steadfast love throughout the entirety of the Bible. Um, in chapter 7, uh, this is like the most popular Gideon chapter, God takes... The 32,000 men that Gideon has, right? And he chisels it down all the way to 300 men. He does a few, few things to chisel them down. All the way to 300. 
They're up against an army that is 135,000 men strong. Okay, so you can do the math. They're outnumbered 450 to one after God had chiseled their numbers down to 300. Um, And somehow, miraculously, Gideon's army of 300 men, they win. They defeat this army. And they're using like the most unconventional weapons of all time, right? They're using trumpets and torches and jars of clay to defeat this massive army. Um, I can't imagine, like, there was probably a line, an assembly line, um, as they were going to get these unconventional weapons. They were probably thinking, like, I'm going to pick up a sword, maybe they're going to give me a shield, a helmet or something. They get up to the table and they're like, here's your weapons, here's your trumpet. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? Like, this goes against, like, all military wisdom, right? Um, It seems like a crazy plan. It seems like a crazy idea. But, of course, God, in his sovereignty, he knew the reason um, for this. God wanted to make it crystal clear that he was entirely responsible for delivering the Israelites from their Midianite oppressors. Um, God wanted the Israelites to realize that they had absolutely no room to boast in themselves. Uh, They could only boast in God for their deliverance. He was their security in times of trouble. He was their refuge in the storm. I love this. God does this throughout the entirety of Scripture. He takes ordinary and unordinary people, and he does miraculous things with them. In in Judges 7, um, he takes Gideon, right? Gideon is the weakest guy from the weakest family in the weakest tribe of Israel. You don't get weaker than that, okay? God picked pick the weakest of the weak. And he used Gideon and just 300 men to defeat an army, this brutal, militant, um, enslaving army with 300 men despite impossible odds. This is amazing. It's an amazing story. But Gideon's story, like I said earlier, it doesn't end here, okay? It keeps going, um, in Gideon's story, it takes this vengeful and arrogant turn. Um, eventually, Gideon will lead the Israelites into a worse place than they were when they started. Um, the judge's role was to bring them out of faithfulness to love and security in God, as God as their king. But Gideon would do the exact opposite. He would bring them from faithlessness to deeper faithlessness. Um, he would elevate himself as king. Um, Gideon's story is pretty tragic. But here, we haven't gotten there yet, okay? So here is, we have, we have some hope, right? Okay, so here Gideon, he has 300 men. So our story begins this morning. He's got 300 men, and they're chasing down the Midianite army that's left. 120,000 have already been wiped out. The tribe of Ephraim has jumped in the battle, and they were like the military guys. They were the warriors. They came in, and they helped wipe these guys out. There's 15,000 left, and they're running away. And Gideon and his men are chasing them down. They're chasing them for 40 miles. 40 miles. They're chasing this group. Um... And I just can't imagine how exhausted they were. They, they were wearing probably full battle rattle, right? They had, like, their weapons with them. You know, they had probably food and water with them. You know, they had their armor on them, which was not like our armor today. It was, like, heavy stuff. And they're chasing these guys for 40 miles um, 
across the desert. They were exhausted. They were physically exhausted, and they were also mentally exhausted. Um, they're chasing down an army that's, that's 15,000 people strong, men strong, right? They have 300 guys. They're still outnumbered 40 to 1, okay? Significantly better odds than they started, 450 to 1, but still, 40 to 1 odds, and they're chasing this army down with 300 guys. And these guys weren't like warriors. These weren't Navy SEALs. These were guys from Manasseh, which was the weakest tribe, okay? They were not like your, your commandos, okay? They were pretty average Joes. They were exhausted. Um, I might be in the army, but I hate ruck marches. I hate them. Uh, maybe it's because of my time in the Air Force made me soft. I don't know. Um, Maybe it's just because ruck marches aren't any fun, right? Uh, they're exhausting going on these long ruck marches. You know, you go 10-mile ruck march or a ruck run, and it's exhausting. Um, these guys, they're rucking for 40 miles. I can't imagine how utterly exhausted they were. But our text says, three of my favorite words in the Bible, they were weary yet pursuing. They were weary yet pursuing. Do these words describe your experience this morning? They do for me. Um, listen, I know you're weary. I know it. I know that this life is exhausting. Um, I know that you're tired. So the question isn't, are you weary? The question is, how are you weary? The second follow-on question is, what are you pursuing while you are weary? Everyone is weary in some form or fashion. You can't escape that reality. Um, perhaps your job is exhausting. You're working long hours, you're away from home, and you're exhausted. Or perhaps your job isn't exhausting, and that's what's causing you to be weary. Uh, you don't feel like you're being utilized. You're undervalued, um, and you're bored at work, and this is causing you to feel weary. Perhaps your schoolwork is exhausting. It's summer, so I guess you don't really have schoolwork. Um, perhaps your kids are exhausted. Every Sunday when I come to church, my kids exhaust me. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Sunday. Um, maybe it's your parents who are exhausting you, or a sibling, or a friend. Uh, perhaps your, your struggle, this recurring struggle with a sin that just won't go away, is exhausting you. Perhaps you have this ongoing battle with grief, or with depression, or with anxiety, or fear, or anger, or shame, you name it, and you're exhausted, and you just want to rest. But you feel weary, Maybe it's your body that's starting to break down. And you're tired of feeling tired. You know, you're tired of your joints, your joints hurting. And you're tired probably even more of going to doctor's appointments all the time. Maybe it's our current political climate. That's exhausting, right? We've got another exhausting political campaign underway. You can't hide from it. It's just everywhere in your face, and it's exhausting. Perhaps it's another war and another deployment and you're exhausted. Perhaps it's your social media account. You know, all of your friends, the lives they portray on social media, they're so perfect. They're so exciting. And you're trying so hard to keep your false self 
and you're trying to keep up with them, and it's exhausting, and it's stripping you of joy. Listen, everyone is weary. I know you're weary. And everyone is pursuing some security to find protection, to protect them from further exhaustion. So what about you? What security are you pursuing? What security are you running to? Well, our text, that's like the longest intro ever. Our text shows us three, uh, three false securities, okay? It shows us three false securities, and then it also shows God tearing each one of these false securities down to the ground and replacing them with the one security that we all actually and desperately need. Okay, so the first false security in this passage is the sucketh security. I want you all to put yourself in this scene, okay? You're like a, a villager in this little Israelite town called Succoth, right? And you're just minding your own business, and then all of a sudden you see 15,000 Midianite soldiers march past your house. 15,000 guys. And these are warriors, mind you. And then following in like hot pursuit, you see Gideon in his 300, this ragtag like militia with trumpets and things like that. And they come to your gates and they're like, hey, can you give us food? We're going after them. We're going to go destroy them. <coughs> okay, buddy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can just imagine what they were thinking, right? What's going on in their heads? They're probably thinking like, hey, Gideon, do you realize who you're up against? I saw how many guys they have. You're outnumbered like 40 to 1. You can't win. If they turn around, they are going to destroy you. And after they destroy you, if I give you food, what's going to happen to me? Well, I'll tell you, Gideon, they're going to come back here and they're going to kill me too. So no thanks, Gideon. I'm good. I'm going to side with them. I'm going to go with the majority here. They're safe. Do you see what's happening here? Although Gideon was fighting to deliver them from slavery, brutal slavery to the Midianites. These weren't like friendly people to the Israelites. He, Gideon was fighting as God's deliverer to free them from slavery. And the people of Succoth aligned themselves with the enemy because their army had greater numbers. It was the safe bet. The people of Succoth were weary. They just saw this huge army go by. And they were probably pretty scared. They were weary. And so what did they pursue while they were weary? They pursued the false security known as safety in numbers. They went with the majority when God was with the minority. Right? A recent study of college-aged males, it showed that this false security is still alive and well today. Um, it's a powerful force. So the study, they took two groups. They took a thousand men, uh, males, um, and these men were raised in families in which they were taught um, that abstaining from sex before marriage um, was, was like not acceptable. Like, whatever. You can have sex before marriage. Okay, the second group, thousand, they were raised in families where they were taught to abstain from sexual activity before marriage. Do you want to know what the study found? 
Get this, the first group, 24% of the group abstained from sexual activity before marriage. 24%, a quarter of the, of the, pop, of the, the, the study group. The second group, 28% abstained. Um, statistically, they're the exact same. Okay, 24, 28%, Christian, non-Christian, statistically, it's the same. Um, you see, we live in a culture that demands assimilation with the majority. Um, we live in a culture that demands us to, f- to follow in line. And I'll tell you guys, the Christian church has f- far too easily complied. We've far too quickly gone with the major- majority because we thought it was the safe way to go. All right? Listen, our culture, it loves to whisper in our ears. It loves to whisper this false security lie. It loves to say, I know you're insecure. I know you are. Everyone is. So when you're insecure, come over here. Come to the majority. 80% of this group believes this way. 90% of your peers believe this way. Do you want security for your decision making? You go with the majority. That's the lie we so often hear. My friend, safety in numbers is a false security. This is a truth that the people of Succoth would soon discover. Um, here's one of the ironies. There's a lot of ironies in, in Judges 8. Here's one. Um, the people of Succoth, they side with Israel's enemies, and as a result, they become Israel's enemies. <laughs> Listen, if you need safety in numbers, if you need that um, to find security in this life, let me, let me throw one on you, okay? Try this one on for size. It comes from Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The writer says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Why are we able to run with endurance? Because we aren't alone. Why are we able to run the race set before us? Because we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. This always reminds me of like Harry Potter when he's going to face Voldemort, right? He's got his mom and his dad and his uncle right there and they're with him as he goes into what he knows will be his last day. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. You're not alone, okay? The majority isn't as big as you think and the minority isn't as small, okay? Or try try this one on for size, okay? It comes from Romans Chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. That, my friends, is a supermajority. Every knee, every tongue. You may not experience the majority now in this life, but it's coming. Number two, the Penuel security. 
So after being turned away by the people of Succoth, Gideon takes his men and they go to the next town. They go to Penuel, right? And they get another, you know, poor um, uh, reception, right? They get another cold shoulder, okay? Um, Now here's the second great irony in Judges 8. Um, It's the location of Penuel, okay? In Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestled with God from dusk to dawn, after Jacob was left limping and clinging to God because he finally realized, after all of his deception, that God alone was his security, that God alone was his refuge in times of trouble, that he was the king, not Jacob. When Jacob is clinging to him, he then names that place in which they fought Penuel. He named it Penuel because it was where he saw God face to face. That's what Penuel means, face of God. Jacob realized while he was wrestling with God that his security rested in the face of God, in the presence of God, in the favor of God, in God's smile on him. It's been 600 years, okay? There's a lot that has happened within this 600 years. There's been 400 years in Egypt, for example. Um, They've had cycle after cycle of enslavement and oppression already in, in the book of Judges. It's been about 600 years, maybe a little bit more. The people have gone back to this place of Penuel, but they've forgotten their namesake, they were, no looking to, they, were no, they were no longer looking to God's face for security, but instead they were looking to this man-made tower that they had constructed, this little fortress, this little kingdom that they had made. They thought that their stuff could protect them and keep them safe. Uh, so my wife and I, we love the travel channel um, and HGTV. We love those shows. Uh, We went to Baylor, so Chip and Joanne are like our best friends. Um, So we were watching the Travel Channel a couple years ago, and there was an episode in which this couple was looking at all these really nice houses, and they made their decision. They picked a house, and the house was worth $30 million. $30 million. They were showing the house, and like every single piece of it was like a modern work of art. Like everything was just beautiful. Um, The tile... You know, the woodwork, it was an incredible, and it was massive, right? The announcer, the host of the show, he's got this deep voice, and he comes on and he says, with a house like this, what else could you need? What else could you need? At the end of the show, this is hilarious, for me at least, they interviewed this couple in their $30 million home. It was like a few months after they bought the home to see how they like it. And they're walking around with this couple, and the couple looks at the staircase, and they go, the staircase is a little too narrow. And they went outside, and the husband looked at the balcony, and was like, the balcony's just too small. We're going to need to fix this. Uh, we've, we've tried to have people over, but we just can't fit many people on the balcony. We're, we're going to need to repair this. And they go into the kitchen, and the wife looks up at the lights in the kitchen, and she's like, man, I wish we had put more lights in. It's too dark in here. They were discontent. And I think we all are too. Um, You don't need to have a $30 million home to relate with this couple, right? Uh, We are also drawn to the same false security that is our stuff. 
We are discontent with our things, with our clothes, with our car, with our jobs. Uh, we're discontent with our bank account, with our various insurance policies, whether it's you know, health or dental, auto, home, whatever, life insurance. We're, we're discontent with all of it. You know, it could always be better. Why are we so discontent? I think it's because we are looking to these things to provide a lasting security that only God can provide. We want them to deliver on something that they can't deliver on. The people of Penuel, they turned away from the face of God and they turned to a tower. They turned towards their stuff and they rejected Gideon, God's anointed deliverer, the person who God raised up to deliver them from slavery. And they turned to this tower to find security, this false security, but in reality it was just a house of cards. That's all it was. And God wasn't afraid to knock it down. And God still isn't afraid to knock that down. My friends, eventually all your possessions will be gone. It'll all be gone. Everything. It'll go to somebody else and it can become their false security. Right? The false security that your stuff offers is temporal at best, enslaving at worst. All right? Number three, the Midianite security. Um, verse 11 reads, And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah in Jogbaha, that's a weird word, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. Why, oh why, did the Midianite kings feel secure in this valley of all valleys? They've been running away from Gideon's 300 men for 40 miles, and then they do something different. See, the, the Midianites, they came up with this great plan. Instead of turning and fighting, or instead of just running away, further, they decided they were going to hide themselves. So they find this valley, and this valley is tucked away in the tribe of Manasseh's land. Okay? And remember what I said earlier? Manasseh was the weakest. And the Midianites probably knew this. They knew that the Midianite tribe was weak. And they knew that this valley was off in the distance, and it was hidden. They thought that they could hide from Gideon, from God's deliverer that they would be safe in this valley. However, the Midianite kings didn't realize one important fact. Gideon was from Manasseh, right? He was from this place. This valley was probably in his backyard. He probably played in this valley as a kid. He knew the landscape. He knew the terrain. So when the Midianite kings go hiding in the valley, what does Gideon and his men do? They flank them. They flank them to the east. And then they crush these 15,000 men. And they wipe them out. So what was the Midianites' false security? It was hiding. Hiding. They thought they could hide from God's anointed one. Brothers and sisters, you can't hide from God. You can try as hard as you want. You can't do it. God created every single molecule in the entire universe. And he holds it all together, every millisecond of every day, by the word of his power. Listen, God knows his world better than you know it. 
There are no hidden valleys. None. The whole world is God's backyard, right? And that includes, this includes the deep, dark valley of your own heart. God knows you better than you know yourself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is sovereign? Do you believe that God knows your sins, your struggles, your brokenness, your fears, your anxieties better than you know them yourself? You can't hide there. In fact, when you try to hide there in that valley, God will go to the valley and he goes to war with your shame. He pursues you there. He goes to war with your anxiety and and all of your fears and your struggles and your brokenness. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, he put it like this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. Not a square inch in all creation. Listen, trying to hide from God is a false security. It's not a new security. We've been doing it since the beginning. Just think Adam and Eve. What did they do? What was their first false security? After they had rebelled against God, ate from the forbidden tree, what did they do? They tried to hide from God. They hid from God behind a bush. I can imagine them saying like, hey, as long as we like keep our heads down and like keep our voices low, God won't find us behind this bush that God created. You can't hide from God. It didn't work well for Adam and Eve and it won't work for you and I either. When you sin, there's one place you need to go and it's not a hiding place uh, that is your shame. It's the hiding place that is God's grace. As Christians, we are not to hide from God. We are to hide in God. Uh, We see this theme repeatedly throughout the Psalms. David prays in Psalm 32. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He sings over you. Weary yet pursuing. I need to wrap this up. Goodness. Uh, That's our experience, right? That's our experience in this life, isn't it? Um, So during my deployments, I've deployed twice, once to Iraq and once to Afghanistan. And... Uh, Whenever our base was attacked, uh, whenever the rockets began to fly, when the sirens began to sound, um, everyone would run to the nearest shelter. Became instinctual, became habitual. Now, sometimes this was a daily occurrence, and often multiple times a day. And I'll be honest with you all, at times it was pretty, pretty frightening, okay? More so than being frightening, it was exhausting. It was just exhausting having to deal with that day after day after day. But once I was in that shelter, I would take this like big breath, this sigh of relief. It's like all I could do once I was in the shelter because I knew I was safe there. Listen, I know that you're weary this morning. You don't got to lie. You don't got to act like you're not. But are you safe this morning? Are you safe from shame? Are you safe from regrets? Are you safe from fear? Are you safe from rage? Are you safe from anxiety? Are you safe from perfectionism? Are you safe from your success? Are you safe from others' opinions of you, whether they're good or bad? 
Are you safe? To put it another way, when the sirens begin to sound, what shelter are you running to? Are you running to a false security that in reality is just a house of cards? It's just going to fall on your head. Or are you running to Jesus? Because he's the only indestructible, safe shelter there is. Our passage this morning it ends on a really sobering note, right? Um, the Midianites, they had a false security. Their false security was hiding. Uh, well, first it was their military strength. They had 135,000 guys. Their hope was in, their security was in their military strength. And when that failed, when they were wiped out, 120,000 of them died, they turned to another false security, which was hiding. And that didn't work either. And as a result, Gideon and his ragtag 300, they flank them and destroy them and overthrow their little kingdom. The people of Succoth, they pursued the false security of safety in numbers. They went with the majority when God went with the minority. They went with the crowd and they turned their back on God's anointed deliverer. And so Gideon, full of rage and boasting, he goes to Succoth and he teaches them a lesson. He takes thorns and he beats their elders. He like beats them down for punishing, to punish them for abandoning God. And Gideon still wasn't done, right? He goes to Penuel. He goes to Penuel. And the people of Penuel, they thought they were safe in this man-made tower. So what does Gideon do? He knocks it down. He knocks down their false security. Gideon still wasn't done, so he kills all the men. Kind of brutal, right? The reality is this, my friends. We are no different. We also turn to the exact same false securities. Um, We are a weary and forgetful people, and we are prone to pursue false securities. We too have turned our backs on God's anointed redeemer. And we too are deserving of God's judgment. As Paul says in Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve what the Midianites deserved. Like the Midianites, we deserve death. Like the people of Succoth, we deserve the thorns. And like the people of Penuel, we deserve to lose all our worldly treasures that we cling to so tight. But here's the beauty of the gospel. And if you haven't listened yet, listen now. God left his eternal security, the eternal security of his throne room, where he was safe, perfectly eternally safe in order to enter into a fallen world full of broken people who pursue false securities. He became the incarnate Penuel, the very face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he was tempted in every single way, but he not once turned from God into a false security, not even once. And as a result of his perfect obedience, for his perfect righteousness, what did we give him? We offered him a cross. 
And here, my friends, is the single greatest display of God's power and covenantal steadfast love in the entirety of the Bible. We gave him a cross, and the God of the universe willingly accepted it. Jesus received the thorns that we deserved. Listen, Jesus wore your crown of shame. Jesus endured your pain. He endured your humiliation. Jesus bore all of your false securities that you love so much. And Jesus paid the penalty for your sins once and for all. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That is the question of questions. Why? Why would Jesus die for me? Why would he die for you? Because without the cross, we would always take credit for God's work. Without the cross, we would always seek to dethrone God. We would be hopeless in and of ourselves. Without the cross, we would always boast in our own work and our own efforts to gain acceptance and favor with God. Without the cross, we would always turn to false securities instead of to the one security that we actually need. And therefore, we would always fall short of the glory of God. And so we would never enjoy what we were made to experience. Eternal rest and security under God's kingship in God's kingdom, for God's glory. That's what we were made for. Jesus died to bring heaven down to earth. We're so preoccupied with bringing or going to heaven. Jesus was preoccupied with bringing heaven here. The good news is that the kingdom that he established through his life, death, and resurrection, it's already here. It's already broken into our reality. He built a kingdom where there is no doubting God's love. He built a kingdom where there is no searching for security because you already have it. He built a kingdom where there is no sorrow and pain, a, a kingdom where there is no weary pursuing. There's only perpetual resting. We may not experience it to its fullest in this life, but we can taste it now. We can taste it. It's already here. Through faith in Christ, you are already a citizen of this kingdom. That's really good news. And because you're a citizen, you can start enjoying the benefits now. God's face shines upon you now because of the work of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when you are weary, which is all the time, Remember this truth. You already are and you always will be secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Um, thank you for redeeming us from slavery to sin, from freeing us from the works of the devil for setting your love on us from all eternity, um, that you would redeem us 
through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would press into him, that we would find our refuge in his work. Um, It is the only refuge in times of trouble. Um, I pray that you will put to death our false securities, that we will see them for what they are, a house of cards, and that we will cling to our Redeemer, the one who loves us, who is for us, and who will come again. And it's through his name we pray. Amen.